Hey, look, now I'm on. Hey, good morning, church. Man, it's great to see you all. If you're a guest with us this morning, thanks for being here. It's great to be able to worship our great God and Savior alongside of you. My name is Stuart McCray. The joy of serving on staff is one of the pastors, and uh, I, I get to ride alongside of you, sit underneath uh, the authority of God's word this morning and worship him as he speaks to us. Uh, we, we've been going through just some, some topical sermons as of late. We're kind of taking a break from our regularly scheduled program of going through the Gospel of John. We're going to pick that back up at the end of this month, um, beginning of April, something like that, and just continue to make our way through the Gospel of John. That way it's all synced up, and we'll, we'll be talking about the resurrection in John as we come to Easter. Um, uh, that's, that's Doug's foresight and planning. So, uh, But this morning, we are in... Uh, Philippians. So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 4, that's, that's where we're at this morning. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, starting in verse 5b, and, and I'll, I'll explain that later, but, but what I mean is we're going to start with this phrase that says the Lord is at hand, or maybe your translation says the Lord is near. Um, now that's where we're going to start, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near, okay? So we're going to go 5B through 9. Philippians 4, follow along with me as I, as I read our passage. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Thoughts of uh, worry, nervousness, angst, fear, anxiety are all too common. As one who's done my fair share of anxious thinking, I've come to the conclusion that in the midst of our anxious thinking, we, we, we seem to, to function like conspiracy theorists. Here's what I mean. In being worried about something that happened in our past and, and thinking about how it most certainly is going to have a negative impact on our future, we can tend to think in wild conspiratorial ways. In our unstable thinking, we believe that if we can just, if we can just figure out the things or, or, or the people that are conspiring against us, that we might be able to forge a better way forward. And certainly, if we can understand everything, we're going to find peace. To one degree or another, we're anxious people, and we can act like conspiracy theorists. That said, we also desperately want the antidote to this destructive affliction. Chronic worry can result in low-level effects on our bodies like fast heartbeat, fatigue, headaches, 
inability to concentrate, irritability, muscle aches, muscle tension, nervous energy, and trembling and twitching, just to name a few. It can also result in far more serious physical consequences like digestive disorders, short-term memory loss, premature coronary artery disease, heart attack, just to name a few. And what's worse than the physical harms that anxiety can bring is the spiritual harm it does bring. Right? When, when we're worrying, we, we, are, we are just not enjoying our relationship with God, are we? In, in fact, Jesus tells us that, that, the, that the root of anxiety is unbelief. We're expressing our unbelief and distrusting God when we're anxious. One biblical counselor says it this way, worry is a deeply spiritual issue. This is not to say that the Bible ignores or disputes the mental, psychological, historical, social, or environmental aspects of worry, but that it sees them all as part of a spiritual issue. That worry ultimately is a response to life lived in God's world. Worry is therefore a response to God himself. But thanks be to God that we have the wisdom of this passage. You see, Dr. Paul, our, uh, our biblical counselor, is going to counsel us that the promises of God's peace and his presence are experienced by those who turn away from anxiety and turn to God in prayer and think in Christ-exalting ways. Here's, here's the good doctor's counsel. The promises of God's peace and his presence are experienced by those who turn away from anxiety and turn to God in prayer and think in Christ-exalting ways. In, in other words, Dr. Paul prescribes us two antidotes for anxiety. Prayer and deep meditation on Christ exalting things. And then he declares two promises of God for, for those who take the medicine, the, the experience of God's peace and the experience of God's presence. Our text is divided into these two antidotes. The first antidote is in verses 5b through 7, and the second antidote is in 8 through 9. So we're just going to go first antidote and then second antidote. So let's reread verses 5b through 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is, is one of the most known, beloved, looked-up passages in all of Scripture. I mean, according to BibleGateway.com, who has like millions and millions and millions of people who traffic through their website every year, this is always top 10 in the search list. It, no surprise. We all struggle with anxiety, and we all desperately want the antidote. Here's the problem, though. Paul's help doesn't start in verse 6, it starts in 5b. 
<laughs> All right, I gave you a letter. What is that about, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen that and you've been confused or just even now is the first time you've ever heard a letter being attached to a verse. There's just, there's just a way that people try to logically divide up a verse. So if you look at verse five, five has two parts. Five has two parts. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's A. And then B is the Lord is at hand. In fact, in the ESV, the Lord is at hand actually has a semicolon after it, so it's actually a, uh, an extension of the sentence that starts in verse six. Maybe yours, it's an isolated sentence, but, but, it, but it's included in the wisdom that Dr. Paul wants to give us for anxiety. So what's the deal with it? Well, before Paul commands us in verse six to do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your request be made known to God, he first reminds us that the Lord is at hand. Let me explain what this, this phrase means and then answer the question, so what? This phrase, the Lord is at hand, means two different things. It means two different things about, the, about Jesus's nearness. One, it's describing that Jesus is near positionally, meaning that he's, he's right here. You could reach out your hand and he's right there. Jesus is near to you. And it speaks to Jesus's eminent return. Jesus's return is near. He's returning soon and he's gonna make everything wrong right. That's what's wrapped up in this one phrase of the Lord is at hand. Okay, so what? Right? Why, why, why does this truth come before the commands and, and what does it have to do with anxiety? Well, Dr. Paul understands that anxious people, listen, that anxious people are prone to think that God is not near. Right? I mean, the thinking is this would not be happening if he was here. And there's little motivation to pray to God when you believe he's left you. The, the truth of his nearness serves to motivate anxious people to put off anxiety and put on prayer. Let me say this again. And, and this, is, this is very significant here, the insight that Paul is bringing to us. Dr. Paul thinks that if we're honest with ourselves, when we're anxious, we can theorize and believe deep within the recesses of our hearts that if God was really here, this wouldn't be happening. He must have left me. C.S. Lewis understood this. Here's how he, here's how he describes it. At the moment of my most profound need, God, who had seemed always available to me, suddenly seemed distant and absent, as if he had slammed the door shut and double-bolted it from the inside. We, we, we struggle for faith in the midst of anxiety. We, we struggle for faith just like David did. I, I, I love the Psalms. They, they are, they're gritty, they're, they're, they're real. They're very honest about, about some ugly things as well. They meet us right where we're at and they, they speak the type of language that sometimes we're afraid to speak. 
And what's beautiful is as much as we're instructed that God can handle us being honest about where we're at and our struggles of, of unbelief, we're, we're also instructed that we're not supposed to stop there. See, David may start with his struggle of unbelief. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Will, will you forget me forever? But David always ends with preaching truth to himself, like the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. I, I get this. C.S. Lewis gets this. The saints of old gets this. Maybe, maybe you get, maybe you feel this too. But Dr. Paul did too, and so his counsel to us is before we ever, ever attempt to obey the commands in verse six, in other words, don't try to obey those commands until you first preach the truth of Christ's nearness to your hearts and to your minds. Family, it's okay. Be honest with how you feel. God already knows it. But if you're not going to be honest with yourself, then, and to him, you're not going to get the help that you need. Be honest with how you feel, but then preach what is real and true in God's word. To your heart, to your mind. When we're anxious and believing lies and conspiracy theories, listen, the truth is, God has not left you. Jesus is very near to you. The maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign king of the universe is ever faithful and ever near to his people. Psalm 46.1 sweetly says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And listen, Paul is not preaching from some ivory tower or some vacation home in the Bahamas as if he doesn't get this, and this is just for other people who might read this. He's in prison. He's writing this letter from prison with death looming on the horizon. Oh, he knows this intimately. He's preaching out of the wealth of his own experience. You see, there's no promises in this passage nor in the Bible that our circumstances will change. No, our, our circumstances may not change, but, but our perspectives, our emotions, and our hearts will. As we first allow anxiety to give way to the truth of God's word, and to an all-consuming vision of our loving, good, and near God. The motivation to put off anxiety and put on prayer, it emerges as we confess our faith in the truth of the Lord's nearness. Friends, there, there is, there's grace to obey the commands in verse six, King Jesus is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, 
let your request be made known to God. Don't worry about anything. Nothing? Man, Dr. Paul, that feels a little unreasonable. Doesn't that, doesn't that feel a little unreasonable? But it's not. It's a very reasonable command for those who are resting in the nearness of Jesus. Oh, our lives may be, uh, seem to be just whirling out of control, but the truth is, the truth is that the sovereign king, the, the, the one who's in control of all things, he hasn't forgotten about us. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, he hasn't left us. And he kindly wants us to cast, not hoard, cast our anxieties on him. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your request be made known to God. The antidote for anxiety that the good doctor has been priming the pump for is prayer. We're called to pray, and then pray again, and then finally, we're called to pray some more, and we're, we're to do so about everything that could be a cause for concern. Dr. Paul uses two synonyms for prayer, prayer and supplication. The term requests simply refers to the specific prayers and supplications that are made. Paul often uses the term prayer to refer to intercessory prayer, praying for others, right? And as we, as we pray for others, our, our anxiety for them, it diminishes, it's defeated. And supplication refers to making an urgent request to God to meet a specific need. Look, here's the point. Whether the concern is, is personal or whether the concern is about or for another, here's the point. God wants to hear about it. He wants you to come to him and tell him. And he doesn't want us to come with vague generalities. He so wants his children to come giving voice to the specific concerns of their hearts. And there's more. We're to let a request be made known with thanksgiving. It said that, this is gonna sting, without thanksgiving, Prayer becomes merely a self-centered means to complain to God about all the bad things that are happening or are perceived to be happening. Listen, we, we express our concerns with thanksgiving because we know that we do not come like orphans having to fend for ourselves, but we come as, as daughters and sons of the king. We come with thanksgiving because we know that, that we know that since God has already taken care of our, the greatest problem, our greatest problem in our sin, he certainly can handle every other lesser problem. Listen, God does already know our worries. It's no surprise to him. But when we give voice to and confess our specific request to God, we're, we're humbly acknowledging our reliance upon him. Prayer orients us away from faithlessness to God in faith. 
we make our request known to God. One commentator says, this one's gonna hurt. Our tendency can be to make our request known to others while neglecting to bring our requests before God himself. Sometimes this residence is rooted in unbelief that God can, either can or will do anything about our requests. At other times, it springs forth from a deeply ingrained self-sufficiency. Yet, no matter what its roots are, Paul calls us to make our requests known to God. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing too small, too trivial, that our Heavenly Father doesn't want you to come and tell him about. We're to let him know of every possible cause for our angst or concern. You're deeply loved. You're deeply loved by your Heavenly Father. And he's sweetly encouraging you, daughter, son, come to me. Come to me and cast your concerns into my fatherly arms. I care for you. Friends, we're, we are graciously called to put off anxiety and put on prayer. And then we're promised that as we pray, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, the promise of God's peace is experienced by those who turn away from anxiety and turn to God by faith in prayer. What better news could there be for conspiracy theorists like us than to hear that the very peace of God surpasses all understanding and will guard, it's a promise, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, in the midst of anxiety, aren't we, are we desperately trying in our own strength to, to understand things, to figure it out? Right? The, well, what if, what, what if what happened, and he said, maybe he didn't mean, and, and well, if she, I think tomorrow I'm going to, and then that'll, but what if they, and oh no, the future is. Sadly, as we go deeper into our anxieties and conspiracy theories, it's hopelessness that sets in. The reality is our perceived understanding devolves into murmurings of confusion. So how kind of God to let us know that his peace surpasses all. All, all, all understanding. God's peace is an otherworldly peace that transcends our flawed and limited thinking. None of our attempts to understand things can resolve our inner torment. Only the healing power of God's peace can transform and quiet our hearts because it surpasses all understanding. What's more, the peace of God will, will guard our hearts and our minds. The heart and the mind are, are uh, 
seen as synonymous terms uh, often in the New Testament. The heart is the center of our intellect and will. It's the, it's the causal core of our being. It's why we do what we do. But here, when Paul separates out a function of the heart, the intellect, and puts it squarely into the mind, he's trying to emphasize the struggle of the mind, of the intellect in anxiety. Like a good soldier actively guarding the city gates, the peace of God actively stands ready, armed to the hilt, to protect our hearts and our minds from the enemy of unbelief. This is so helpful of the good doctor to mention. I mean, he, he could have said, this is how this thing could have gone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious. But let your request be made known to God and the peace of God will be with you. And that would be sweet news. Paul's certainly known for his apostolic ministry, often for being a great theologian. But, but this, this guy clearly has some significant like pastoral counseling skills. He, he understands the, 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 the psyche, if you will, the, the, the heart of the anxious person. And he understands some of the caveats about the peace of God that's supposed to get work done in our hearts and in our minds. You see, he tells us very helpfully that the peace of God surpasses all understanding. That's good news for anxious conspiracy theorists like us. And it will, it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. One pastor well said, when a believer prays, God may not change their circumstances, but he does change and protect their hearts and minds. The promise of active fortification stands assured through the means of our union with Christ. Jesus is the one who said to his anxious disciples in John 14, 27, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you, I do not give to you as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled or fearful. The peace of God does, does not guard our hearts and minds in some sort of abstract, theoretical way. No, 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 it, 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 it does so in the, in the safety and security of our relationship with Jesus himself, the invincible Prince of Peace. The promise of God's peace is experienced by those who turn away from anxiety and turn to God in prayer. Anxiety is foreign to no one. And friends, no peace will be found in, in, in fearfully straining to figure things out. I, I stand as a testimony to that. No peace will be found in turning to distractions like, like food or entertainment or work. I, I stand as a witness to that. The, the promise of God's peace is experienced by those who turn away from anxiety and by faith turn to God in prayer. Friends, you are loved. You are loved by a good and gracious God, he has not left you nor forsaken you. He's very near to you. 
reach out to him. He, he knows what's going on, and he, he so wants you to trust in him. God in Christ loves you dearly, and he's promised you sweet and preciously that through prayer he will gift you the peace that has eluded you. And, and not just any peace, but his peace. His peace that eclipses all human understanding. His peace that actively stands as a, as a garrison, always ready to protect you from you. Dr. Paul's first antidote for anxiety is prayer and the promise of God's peace is experienced by those who turn away from anxiety and turn to God by faith in prayer. All right, the, the doctor's second antidote is found in our next verses. Before we go there, let me confess to you that, that I, I, I made a blunder in the sermon notes. So if you're looking at them, point two says point two, but then it actually repeats point one. Yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's me. So if you're taking notes, the, the antidote here, if you want in the title of that one is Christ-exalting thinking and the promise of God's presence. Christ-exalting thinking and the promise of God's presence. Good, I've set that straight. Okay, all right. Follow along with me as I reread verses eight through nine. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. As we pray and we experience the peace of God and as anxieties are, are washed away, we're able to start thinking in more clear-headed ways. And so like any good counselor, the good doctor gives us some, some homework, gives us some assignments. There's one final antidote for anxious conspiracy theorists, and it's to replace anxious thinking with Christ-exalting thinking. Dr. Paul actually instructs us to do two things and they both have to do with our thought life. First, he exhorts us to intentionally think in specific Christ-exalting ways. And then second, he exhorts us to put into practice Christ-exalting thinking by following godly examples of this kind of thinking. Dr. Paul's list in verse eight of, of what to think about is, is laid out very intentionally. There's, there's six specific virtues that start with the phrase whatever is, and they describe what we should be dwelling on. They're descriptions of the things that we should be dwelling on. And, and then there's these last two phrases that start with if there is, these are the, these are the Christ-exalting things that the virtues point to and describe. These are the things that actually should be um, filling our minds. Let me just give you a word or two about each one. So first, whatever is true. Thinking of true things is thinking of those things that are, are real, really real, genuine, and accurate versus those things that are false or a lie. In other words, our thinking must be in alignment with the truth of God's word. Two, whatever is honorable. Thinking of honorable things is thinking of those things that are noble and dignified versus those things that are, are demeaning. In other words, our thinking must be things that, that pull us up and not down, those things that are Christ-honoring. Three, whatever is just. Thinking of just things is thinking of those things that are defined as righteous by God, not the culture around us. 
In other words, our thinking must be in, the con- must be in conformity to the just and right- righteous standards of our just and righteous God. For whatever is pure, thinking of pure things is thinking of those things that are holy and innocent and unstained versus those things that are corrupt and filthy and evil. In other words, our thinking must be filled with things that in God's eyes are morally upright. Five, whatever's lovely. Thinking of lovely things is thinking of those things that are ethically attractive and beautiful, admirable. I mean, it's the very opposite of those things that are ethically crude and, and ugly. In other words, our thinking must be filled with those things that God finds ethically beautiful and spiritually attractive. Six, whatever is commendable. Thinking of commendable things is thinking of those things that are highly regarded and well spoken of versus those things that give an offense. In other words, our thinking must be filled with whatever is well spoken of by God, whatever is highly regarded in his mind. So these specific virtues should describe the kinds of things that fill our minds. The last two start, that start with the, the phrase, if there is, again, these, these are the actual things, the Christ-exalting things that should be filling our mind, um, that we should be actually dwelling on. So unlike the previous virtues that, that are very distinct, right, and they even come out sort of very staccato, right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, they're very, they're very separate individual categories, these last two phrases, they actually go together. And I hate to say it, but uh, the, we primarily, or at least we preach from um, the ESV, it, it's not helpful here. Almost every other popular translation gets this thing right. Uh, and I, I wouldn't... I hate doing this type of stuff, so I wouldn't do it if it wasn't, I'm not just being nerdy here. There should be uh, an and between these two statements. In fact, some, some translations actually put um, dashes around these statements to sort of quarantine and section them away, but also show that they go together. There should be an and. Um, here, here's how the NASB um, says it. If there's any, any excellence and anything worthy of praise, all right, here, here's, here's why we, we make the, the little fuss here. It's the same thing. They're not distinct. If something is truly morally excellent, it's worthy of praise. And if something is worthy of praise, it's morally excellent. We're not talking about two separate things. We're talking about one thing that is both morally excellent and worthy of praise. Okay? And listen, although this is kind of phrased in, in like a question There is no question in Paul's mind that these things exist. There are these things that we should be thinking about as opposed to these other things that that, that we get anxious over. There are excellent and praiseworthy things in this world that, that, though imperfect, point to and magnify the excellency and praiseworthiness of Christ. If we stop and we think about it, This whole section, this, this describes our Savior. Not only in his person, but in the way that he thought. Constantly and consistently in every circumstance and at every point, Jesus' thoughts could, could be described as true, honorable and just and pure, lovely, commendable. He always had his mind wrapped around those things that were morally excellent and worthy of praise. And the command here is for us to intentionally think about these things, 
Not the, not the conspiracy theories that we can be tempted to, to delve into when anxious. Intentionally. Listen, passivity won't work here. The drift is never towards Christ-exalting thinking. It's always away. In other words, in the midst of angst, the natural tendency won't be to think in true and pure ways. But the pull will be to think in conspiratorial ways, those ways that feel true but are actually just assumptions. You see, in our flesh, we're prone to worry, worry about the potential of the future rather than dealing with the truth of the present. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we must, by his grace, supernaturally and intentionally meditate on Christ-exalting things. Okay, so his first exhortation is for us to intentionally think on Christ's exalting ways, and now, verse nine, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. This second assignment is directly connected to the first. We're to put into practice Christ-exalting thinking by following godly examples of Christ-exalting thinking. Paul often uses himself as a model of godly living worth imitating. And listen, it's good to imitate others as long as those traits that we are imitating are Christ-like traits. In fact, in imitating others who are imitating Christ, you are imitating Christ. So, so here's what I think this looks like. We, we, we all need to grab at least one person who's more spiritually mature than us, someone, someone who's further down the road, someone who thinks biblically and has their mind set on Christ, and we need to watch them. We need to listen to them. We need to engage with them about the way that they think. We need to watch and we need to listen how they view and engage the world around them, what they read, what they talk about, what music they listen to, how they process difficult things, what they value, what they love, and so on and so on and so forth. Friends, we, we've, we've been given some, some serious homework here we're commanded to think about Christ-exalting things and to practice this. And listen, God in his grace has determined that these commands should be worked out in community. The command in verse six, the let your request be made known to God, that was actually a singular command, right? Like, you individually need to make your request be made known to God. Others can't express your concerns for God. They can, they can, they can pray for you and pray that you will, but that's, that's to you, right? God is commanding individually you to make your concerns known to him. And, and so what's fascinating is, is I figured that these commands would be the same. And I was wrong. They're actually plural, which again, might sound a little nerdy here, but, but here, here's the point. Family, the, the grace that God wants to give us to put off anxious conspiratorial thinking and put on Christ-exalting thinking is by telling us that these commands are to be worked out together. 
God doesn't want us to go about transforming our thought life alone. We need help. We need help, and it's God's grace to get help. God's grace is found in our being called to think in Christ-exalting ways together. You see, we've all experienced this. God is, God is pleased to bring others around us to give us help. And he wants to do that here, too, with our thought life. I'll give a practical way that this looks like at the end of our sermon. We'll pause there for that. So here, here we go. So we're exhorted to intentionally think in specific Christ-exalting ways and then to practice Christ-exalting thinking by emulating others who think in such ways. And then at the end of verse 9, we're promised that as we do these things, the God of peace will be with you. You, you see, the first section is about anxiety and, and the goal of receiving the peace of God. This section is about anxiety too and thinking in Christ-exalting ways and actually enjoying and experiencing the God of peace himself. These go together. There, there's a misconception that, that eight through nine starts a new topic. It doesn't. And we see the, the play that Paul's doing with the first being in seven, the peace of God is given, and then now here the, the God of peace is experienced. The, the promise of God's presence is experienced by those who turn away from anxious thinking and think in Christ-exalting ways. But listen, it's not as though God isn't with us. He is. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. That's a, that's a promise in Christ Jesus, friends. But when we're anxious, come on, we're not enjoying the experience of his presence that's why the promise of God's presence is experienced by those who turn away from anxious thinking and think in Christ-exalting ways. I hope this has been a, a profitable counseling session. I, I need this passage. I, I'm hoping just as much as you all do. This is, this is some some significant blessing from God to have this passage, receive this type of grace for the, uh, one of the most common problems of anxiety. Dr. Paul's counsel for anxious conspiracy theorists like, like us is the promises of God's peace and his presence are experienced by those who turn away from anxiety and turn to God in prayer and think in Christ-exalting ways. Look, at the end of the day, the, the, the aim, the goal is to replace anxiety with the God's peace and God's presence. Prayer and, and, and thinking in Christ-exalting ways, these are just the antidotes to get to enjoying and experiencing the peace of God and the presence of God. That's the whole goal here. We want to we replace, we want to put off anxiety and put on God's peace and God's presence. This is a rich passage with theological truths, gracious commands, just awesome promises. It's actually also a very highly practical passage to just work through. I, we already went into all the details, so I'm not, not doing the details, but just really high level, I, I want to show you how I use this passage, not only for myself, but as, I'm, as I counsel others uh, who struggle with anxiety. Here's what it looks like. I start right with 5B. Steward. I'm in throes of anxiety, or I'm helping another. 
Stuart, Jesus is near. Take heart, Stuart. He hasn't left you. He loves you. In Christ Jesus, he will never forsake you. You can say these truths to others. We start with 5B, friend. Friend, you, you may be, whether you realize it or not, struggling with the fact that you believe God has left you. He hasn't. He loves you. He's here for you. He's very, very near. He's for you. He's not against you. And we continue to preach this. And I, and I can feel even just now, my heart just warming. The, the coldness and the hardness is just starting to, to break down. And we just keep preaching that truth. We want to rest in that. And really, it's just sort of a natural transition that anxiety just inevitably starts flowing away this is God's wisdom, starts coming away, and we start praying. And we're honest. Jesus, I'm struggling. I'm struggling, and right now, actually, my greatest struggle is, is I'm not trusting you. I don't think that you have this in control. It doesn't feel that way. And go back and he's preach the truth, but I know you do. You're right here. Please, Jesus, help me. Help me to believe in these truths. Help me to soften my heart and, and encourage me to come to you and trust in you and love you. You love me. And praying. And then we've got to be honest and very specific about our concerns. What are the specific concerns that we have that are giving us great angst? Maybe it's that loved one. Maybe it's the issue at, at work. Maybe it's the conflict with your spouse or your kids or your extended family member. Or you fill in the blank. But we'd be very specific. Jesus, help. Help me to trust in you with this. Maybe you'd be pleased to give me some understanding. Maybe, maybe you won't. But help me to trust in you. Help me to trust that I know that this isn't chaos. You're behind these things. For my good and your glory, help me to believe this. We're very specific. And, and honestly, the, the promise of God's peace just starts... It just happens. You just, just keep going. Maybe you got to go back to the, the, the truth of his nearness and intermingle that. But then as your, your heart does soften and you come to a more stable place of thinking, you, you move right to eight and nine. And this is the way it looks like for me. Um, either I do some self-analysis some self, uh, uh, and then I'll, I'll go ask uh, others for, for help. And it's, Stuart, was what you were thinking about, was that, was that true? Was that really true? Was, was it lovely? Was it pure? You know, no, 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 right? And then I, Stuart, what is true? What is lovely? What is commendable? And, and honestly, maybe the same things that are coming into your mind right now, but I, I start thinking of God. I start thinking of who he is and his character, his love towards me. I start thinking of, of revealed biblical truths, promises that I can cling to, those things that are true, are lovely, are just. And then I go to someone else too. My wife, close friends, help me. I know I'm not thinking well about this. Can you help me? Here are the things that I'm thinking. Pretty sure I've got this wrong. Pretty sure that I'm, I'm believing in lies can you help me? Are these things true and real and so on and so forth? And then help, what, what is true? What are, tell, me, tell me, help me. 
we go, right? This is what these things can practically look like, friends. This is, this is, a, this is a little resource manual on how we can give self-counsel and we can give counsel to others who are struggling with anxiety. And I want to encourage you that way. You just go right up from 5B, work, work your way down. This is a very highly practical passage. I want to commend that to you. The promises of God's peace and his presence, they are experienced by those who turn away from anxiety and turn to God in prayer and think in Christ-exalting ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your kindness in providing us this passage. What, what, what truths, what, what, what commands for us to obey, what, what promises that are here you are so kind to your children to provide this kind of wisdom. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you empower us to, to, to live in the good of it, to, to use it, um, to use it often, to, to use it, and then, and then in five minutes need to go back through it again. And, and there's, no, there's no shame in that. You want us to receive grace. There's grace in this passage. And I'm praying, Father, that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to, to, to see it to, to rest in it, to use it, to apply it to our lives, to apply it to uh, our friends' lives. Um, thank you. Thank you for the sweet and precious promises that you've made in Christ Jesus. We, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.